Well, guys, as we jump back into Revelation this morning, I want to bring up the topic of the deep innermost parts of our heart that long for acceptance, significance, and security. We were designed by God to long for those things. God has wired us to need those things, ultimately so that we would run to him, so that we would only find our acceptance and our significance and our security in our Lord Jesus. Yet how often do our weary hearts turn to other things to find that acceptance, the significance, and the security that we were made to find in his presence? Even when things are going well, We turn aside so quickly. We don't feel the immediate satisfaction of the Lord's acceptance of us or our significance in his eyes or our security in his presence. And so we turn to other things because we want that immediate gratification. And that's when things are going well. But how much more difficult is that to do when life is difficult? When you're experiencing tribulation and trials? Oh, it's so much more difficult. Today's text is going to bring up again this theme of tribulation that runs throughout the book of Revelation. And and it runs throughout the New Testament, but especially Revelation. And persecution against the church is such a powerful weapon of the enemy because it threatens that very need for acceptance, significance, and security. Persecution against the church is a powerful weapon of God's enemy because it gets to the deepest parts of our heart that need that acceptance, significance, and security. So our text for today contains the letter to the church in Smyrna. And it's not a correction, as the letter to the Ephesians was, but rather a commendation, an exhortation, and encouragement for them to continue being faithful in light of persecution. Persecution is such a powerful weapon, as I've already said. And sadly, time after time, individuals come to a profession of faith in Jesus. They identify themselves with Jesus, and they're actually met with a very, the very assault on their acceptance, significance, and security in Christ. Nobody wants to be rejected by family and friends. Nobody wants to be publicly slandered, harassed, berated, ridiculed. Nobody wants to be beaten or imprisoned at all, especially not for the sake of Christ when they, when they profess their faith in him. Yet so many times this is the response for people around the world in the first century and today. And sadly, as Jesus said in Mark 4, there will be many when persecution arises on account of the word who will immediately fall away. That's the sad reality. This is a powerful weapon of the enemy, and it's often effective in driving people away from Christ. But that's not all. There are also those who, there's been a remnant throughout history of individuals who profess to know Christ, to belong to Christ. They're met with persecution, and they endure faithfully. And it's those individuals that this letter is commending and encouraging and speaking to. There's that remnant who has been faithful. 
And it's that remnant of faithful ones, faithful witnesses who endure the persecution that Jesus is honored by, that Jesus rewards. And so that's where we're going today. And, and the big idea from the letter to Smyrna is that as a Christian, you are called to faithfully represent Christ through persecution. As a Christian, you're called to represent Jesus faithfully in the face of persecution. And I do want to just encourage you, we have to take something of a mental step outside of our own context, because in some sense, we're not experiencing persecution right now. But at the same time, I also want you to keep one foot in our context, because I do believe there's something for us to, to hear. There's something of an encouragement that we need for our context in this letter. So don't just tune this out because you're not experiencing persecution, so you think. Um, I want you to stay engaged, one foot in a worldwide context and one foot in our context as we receive this encouragement. So let's read together Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what... The Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What we see here as we jump into the text right off the bat is that the church of Smyrna was experiencing trouble. And the words of Christ that we find in this letter to Smyrna spoke kindly to their troubled hearts. As we, as we talk about this idea of persecution and tribulation, I want to offer three points of encouragement. And those are my three main points. And the first point of encouragement to any Christian who is facing persecution on account of the word is that Jesus knows your troubles. Look at verse 9. He starts off right away by saying to the church, I know your tribulation and your poverty, and I know the slander that you're experiencing. Just to give you guys a little background on the situation here that, that Jesus was writing into through John, um, what we know of history is that the church of Smyrna, or the, excuse me, the city of Smyrna was a cultured city. This was a city that had long been influenced by Greek culture and then as the Roman Empire was gaining power, they were strongly influenced by a devotion to the Roman cult and the Roman Empire. The city of Smyrna was very cultured. They loved arts. They loved beauty. And they were devoted to Rome. Actually, they were historically known for their devotion to Rome. And they even are credited with uh, inventing the goddess Roma. And they had been honored by the building of Roman temples in their city because they had devoted themselves to Rome. It was possible 
to live in the city of Smyrna and to become a successful person. Yet the church in Smyrna, Jesus says, was experiencing poverty. Why was the church in Smyrna experiencing poverty? We don't entirely know whether, um, as Jesus writes, we don't know if their poverty was a result of the slander that we're about to talk about or if it was pre-existing before that. But what we do know is that the church in Smyrna was living in the middle of a cultured city where worldwide trade was flourishing and they were in poverty. And I want to point out that the word poverty here is not just the lack of excess. This word for poverty here means destitution, deep poverty. They were in dire need. And then Jesus says, I know the slander that you're experiencing. Throughout the Roman Empire, the Jewish people had something of an understanding in that they were allowed to practice their religion, whereas other um, religions were required to be devoted to Rome. And the Jewish people were, uh, were allowed to merely offer sacrifices in honor of the Roman emperor as a ruler, but not necessarily as a god. And so early on in the church, there was something of a protection as the Christians were kind of sheltered under that understanding with the Jewish people. But as you guys know, through the New Testament, in the early church, there was intense rivalry between the Jewish people and the church, all centered on the identity of Christ. And so as the Jews throughout the empire, but especially in the city of Smyrna, uh, were, were in rivalry with the Christians, it was very easy and it was very important to the Jewish people to distinguish the Christians from them. And so what we see, um, just by way of what we read in history, um, in the city of Smyrna is that the Jews were actively opposed to the church. And so the slander that Jesus speaks of was coming at the mouths and, and at the hands of the Jewish people who were attempting um, to bring harm upon the Christians, to bring a distinction, to say they are not part of us and they're actually disloyal to Rome. This was um, beyond the common tribulation of poverty, the common tribulations that we all experience in this sin-cursed world, the slander of the Jewish people in Smyrna against the church moved them into that unique category of tribulation that we call persecution. It was maltreatment based on their faith identity, based on the fact that they followed Jesus as their king and as their Messiah, they were slandered. One of the common complaints against Christians that we know of in history in the Roman Empire was that they were disloyal to the Roman Empire, that they were disturbing the peace because they weren't following the status quo. This slander by the Jews in the public square in front of the Roman officials would have intensified the tribulation of poverty that they may have already been experiencing. And if it wasn't already experiencing, that slander could have actually caused their poverty. The Roman cult worship was so intertwined with the economy and with the trades that if you were a Christian tradesman, you could have easily been excluded from practicing your trade because of your identity as a Christian and your refusal to participate in the Roman cult worship. The slander 
of the Jewish people in Smyrna would have socially excluded the Christians, it would have sped up their marginalization, and it would have, as we will see, led to their arrest, their imprisonment, even beatings, and even death. And so it's to a church in the middle of the tribulation of poverty and public slander that would threaten their safety that Jesus writes these words, I know your tribulation. I see what you're going through, and I'm aware of it. The one experiencing persecution on account of the word, on account of Jesus, is not unknown to Christ. Despite those immediate feelings of rejection, those immediate threats to your security, uh, those feelings of betrayal, Christ the King is noticing. He knows. But beyond just this general awareness of their tribulation, Jesus really knows deeply the experiencing of suffering persecution. And he can rightly say, I know what you're going through, because he walked through it himself. He doesn't just know that his church is being persecuted, but he actually knows how it feels. He's felt the rejection of public slander. And in essence, he's saying to the Smyrnaean church, because you're trusting in me, because I'm present cheering you on, I'm sustaining you, you're not rejected, but you're actually rich. He says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. The one who's trusting in Christ in the midst of tribulation is rich, despite having nothing physically. And so the Christian who's undergoing tribulation and specifically persecution can take great solace in the fact that Jesus is near and that he knows your troubles on the deepest level. Meditating on that truth serves to strengthen our trust in him as he's shepherding us through tribulation. He knows your troubles. But despite the fact that they were experiencing trouble and Jesus knew those troubles, we see in verse 10 that the the troubles and the tribulation of the Smyrnaean church was about to get worse. And so Jesus graciously gives them encouragement before it was even needed. And this is a side note, but I want to point out, this is the beauty of the prophetic functioning in the church today, is that so often Jesus wants to offer encouragement to his people before the moment that it's needed. Have you guys experienced that? Have you ever been given a prophetic word and then fast forward, you're in the moment when it was needed and you you call to mind that prophetic word that was shared with you and it's such an encouragement. Man, Jesus is so gracious in that he gives us encouragement before it's needed. So that's what we see here in the rest of this letter is that he's encouraging his church. Yes, they're, they're already experiencing tribulation, but he's giving the encouragement needed for what was to come. And so in the letter here, distinct from Ephesus, where Jesus said, if you continue to be unfaithful, I will remove my lampstand from among you. Here in the letter to Smyrna, he's saying, if you continue to be faithful, things are going to get worse. 
So Jesus was present. He was aware. He knew about their troubles. He knew how it felt, but he was permitting it to continue, and he was permitting it to even increase. In Smyrna and in every other church, from then until now into the future, here's point number two. When persecution arises, Jesus is allowing the church to be tested. So that's point two. Jesus allows your testing. He knows your troubles, and he allows your testing. Look again at verse 10. He says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you'll have tribulation. It's no secret to Christians that God allows testing. And he allows testing in a variety of ways by a variety of means and causes. Yet in the midst of that testing, he's constantly working to refine us and to produce his fruit in us. This is what we talked about in the book of Ruth. He's constantly providentially working through these variety of um, different tests and trials to bear his fruit in us and to make us blameless like Christ. Keep in mind the lampstand imagery from Revelation chapter 1. Every time you face evil, every taste of darkness is an opportunity to burn brightly with the flame of God's presence. And this is one of the ways that, that God's kingdom comes to earth as it is in heaven, when his people face darkness and evil and they burn brightly with the presence of Jesus, they actually can, can let him rule over them in those moments. When they're faced with evil, they respond how Jesus responds, they act how Jesus would act, they speak as Jesus would speak, his presence is made known, and he's actually ruling over us, so his kingdom is coming in those moments, in those face-offs with evil, when you respond as Christ would, with the light of his presence, you're actually bringing his kingdom to bear in the darkness. Now remember, as we talk about the Lord allowing testing, we have to understand as best we can this mystery of God's sovereignty over and against and despite the problem and existence of evil in the world. And even as I say that, we can't fully understand it. We need to trust in the Lord. Some of it's going to remain a mystery, but we also need to ask the Lord to help us understand it as much as we can. And so my, my aim isn't to fully address the problem of evil right here and right now, but it's something that arises as we talk about persecution in the church. If Jesus is allowing persecution to happen, here's the common lie of the enemy, that if he's allowing it, he must be causing it, otherwise he's not really in control. And if he is really in control, then why would he cause you or allow you to go through such deep suffering. That's the lie of the enemy, and we have to just address that here. And we have to, to, to call out in the text what Jesus says about the persecution that comes upon his church. We cannot fully understand God's sovereignty 
but we have to do our best to move to move into uh, understanding it by his wisdom and by his spirit. So I just want to point out three things about persecution um, in light of this truth, that, that Jesus allows your testing. Just three quick points from, from the text. The first thing is that it's so important for us to know that though Jesus allows our testing, he does not persecute his church. And this is so important for the person who's enduring persecution because that lie um, is, is coming at us. The enemy is throwing that dart at us that Jesus must be causing this. He must be persecuting you. Otherwise, he's not really in control. But Jesus would say in this letter, clearly, that testing by persecution comes from Satan. Look at the end of verse 9. He says that the slander of the Jews is actually a result of the synagogue of Satan. Now this persecution is coming at the hands and by the mouths of Jewish people. They're humans. But he attributes that as a result of making way for Satan to rule over them because they have rejected Jesus. They're an assembly of people who have rejected Christ and they're giving the enemy sway. And so they're actually carrying out the result of letting Satan rule over them in their rejection of Christ. But then verse 10, um, he says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Now the imprisonment would have come, and as we can look back in history, at the hands of the Romans. These were, again, humans bringing to bear the activity of the devil. And so what we see is that acts of persecution against the church, though carried out by humans, are actually the wrestling against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that Paul spoke of in Ephesians chapter 6. Jesus does not persecute his church. That is the truth, and the lie is that Jesus brings the persecution upon his church. He allows testing by persecution, but the persecution comes from the, from the devil. And so it's so important for the person who's enduring persecution to recognize persecution as spiritual warfare. Because number one, that when you, when you recognize it as warfare, spiritual warfare, it increases your dependence on God. This is not wrestling against the people who are bringing it to bear upon you. This is a spiritual wrestling against the forces of evil. And number two, recognizing it that way helps us to respond in moments of persecution as ambassadors of reconciliation and not as soldiers who need to fight back physically. And even as I say that, I, I, I call to mind Corey Ten Boom and the way that she approached persecution. She was brutally persecuted by the Nazis. Yet, she approached those moments of persecution as an ambassador of reconciliation and not as one who needed to get revenge. So testing by persecution comes from Satan. But the second thing that we see in the text is that testing by persecution is temporary. And this actually applies to all tribulation, not just persecution, that it's temporary. Look at verse 10 again. Jesus says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. 
you're going to be thrown into prison by Satan that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. I want to point out that this phrase, for 10 days, is a reference back to the book of Daniel chapter 1. And you guys know the story of Daniel and his three friends who were brought into Babylon, and they were tested time after time. This phrase, for 10 days, comes from Daniel 1, 12, um, in the story where the king wanted the, wanted the men to feast on his food, and they said, no, 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 no. We are loyal to God, and so you're going to test us for 10 days. We're only going to eat vegetables, and you're going to see which ones of us are actually thriving here. And it's the ones who trust in God, who are faithful to him, who endure persecution. That's the story of Daniel. And that story was historically um, sort of the, the example of how to endure persecution. And so as we see time after time in Revelation, there's, there's symbolic use of numbers. And so to say that for 10 days you will, be, you will have tribulation, though it may have meant actually 10 days, it's more likely that Jesus was saying, for a brief time, for a temporary period of time, you are going to have intensified tribulation. I also want to point out in, in the beginning of this letter, as Jesus says that your, your tribulation is only going to be for a brief time, I want to point out that he actually addresses this letter to Smyrna from... He identifies himself as the first and the last. Remember, he uses these identifiers from the vision in Revelation 1 to speak to a particular point in each letter. And so this point in this letter calls to mind the fact that Jesus is eternal, that he stands outside of time, and that all things are in his control. He is the first and he is the last. Nothing that happens is outside of his control, and he would say, I'm eternal, this is for but a moment. See, all persecution that Christians experience is temporary. And I would even say that it's brief. Think about 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, where Paul says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Recognizing persecution as temporary and even brief is so necessary because it increases our hope of eternal glory. When we call to mind that this is just temporary, that we're going to see this through on the other side with Christ, who is eternal, that increases our hope of eternity. It increases the joy as we look forward to that eternal glory. But secondly, recognizing persecution as temporary helps us to patiently endure each moment. You guys may have been in an exercise workout and you feel the burn and you look at the stopwatch to see how many seconds you have left. In essence, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, this is temporary, this is brief, it's going to be intense, but it's going to end. Endure for just another moment. Testing by persecution is temporary. And the third point, I'm actually calling um, upon other texts to make this point. Um, but I think it's fair to mention it here, 
And I think it's important that testing by persecution fulfills God's purpose. And again, this is another, another point that could be applied to all tribulation, not just persecution for Jesus' name's sake. But testing by persecution fulfills God's purpose. And in other words, what I mean is that Satan's attacks against the church ultimately serve to further defeat himself. Think about this. As Satan brings persecution upon the church, his mission is to stop the church's mission. His mission is to cause people to curse God and to turn away from God. And in many cases, it seems that he's successful. But in reality, he's just serving to defeat himself and fulfill God's purposes. Because enduring persecution, enduring trials with faith in Jesus, being faithful to him, purifies, strengthens, and sanctifies the church. That's what we see in scripture. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 says that testing of any kind produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete. The testing increases your strength. It increases your faith and it actually makes you blameless. 1 Peter 1, 7 says, You have been grieved by trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, may be found to result this is the result of testing, that, that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Enduring that testing faithfully, depending on Christ, only serves to result in the praise and honor and the glory of Christ at his revelation. See, this refining process of enduring trials and persecution with Christ, it results in strengthened faith increased boldness, a zeal for holiness, and it results in fewer lukewarm and false Christians in the church. And so while it seems like Satan's successful when people turn away, what's actually happening is God is refining his church so that the ones who are present, the remnant of faithful ones, are the real ones, the faithful witnesses. And so those who are turning away are serving to strengthen the church and to purify the church. Oh, when testing happens and Christians are faithful to Christ, his presence becomes more apparent. His, his, his name is glorified in those moments when we shine with his presence. He's only glorified more. Oh, and the church thrives in those moments. Satan's attacks by persecution only serve to fulfill God's purposes and further defeat himself. Paul describes it this way in Philippians 1, verses 28 to 30. When we strive together in one mind for the sake of the gospel, in the midst of persecution, this is a clear sign to them, to your enemies, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. With these bedrock truths in your arsenal, that persecution comes from Satan, that it's only temporary, and that it serves to fulfill God's purposes, with those truths, there's no reason to fear persecution. That's how Jesus can say, do not fear what you're about to suffer. 
This is a normal part of spiritual warfare for the Christian who's following Jesus faithfully. It's temporary and it serves to strengthen the church and sanctify your inner self. Jesus allows your testing. And now there's one final point of encouragement to the one who is enduring persecution. The words of Jesus, the first and the last, who died and came to life. Look at the final phrase of verse 10. He says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The clarion call for Christians facing trials, tribulation, and persecution is to be faithful to Christ. Even when it costs your very life. But Jesus doesn't call his people to be faithful unto death without promising great reward. So as we consider that Jesus is calling us to endure persecution by representing him faithfully, even in the most dire circumstances, even in the most intense persecution, we've got to remember, and this is point three, that Jesus rewards your faithfulness. He knows your troubles, he allows your testing, and he rewards your faithfulness. Remember that acceptance, the significance, and the security that I mentioned at the beginning that we all long for that we don't necessarily feel when we're facing tribulation. Well, Jesus extends the fulfillment of those very things among many others by just summing it up in the phrase, the crown of life. To be crowned in human terms is one of the highest honors in the world. The one who receives a crown is being honored. They're being accepted as one who can rightly rule. The one who receives the crown is significant because they possess that authority. And the one who is given the crown is given the highest security as they're guarded to continue ruling in that authority. To receive the crown is a position of high honor and regard. Yet the crown of life that Jesus extends to his faithful witnesses who conquer through perseverance carries even greater weight of eternal glory. While being crowned on earth is one of the highest honors, being crowned by Jesus with the crown of life has eternal weight of glory. The crown of life is the fulfillment of God's promises to his people from all eternity. And it's also referred to by Peter as the unfading crown of glory, namely, eternal life in the presence of God, which is made possible by the victory of our crucified, risen, and glorified King Jesus. The word crown should take us back to the royal language of John's greeting in Revelation 1. To the one who has remained faithful through persecution unto death, is resurrected into the presence of King Jesus, 
the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, the living one, the first and last, the almighty, the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, to whom alone belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. There's only one king and his name is Jesus. Death is not king. The rulers of this world are not king. Satan is not king. Jesus alone is king. But he's the king who conquered by faithfully enduring unto death so that he could share the crown of his glory with all those who are faithful to him unto death. He's pleased, he's honored, he's glorified when you suffer for his name's sake. Don't be confused. We don't become God and we don't come anywhere close to being equal with God. But the reward for your faithfulness is to share in his crown of glory. The reward for your faithfulness is to share in all of the bounty that he has earned by his victory over death and sin. He's sharing that with you. In Christ, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let that truth bring you to your face in worship before him. See, the crown of life belongs to Christ alone. He's the one who died and came to life. Yet to the one who is faithful, he stands ready to share with you the unfading crown of his glory. This is why royal weddings in the world are such a big deal. One who is not part of the family does not wear the crown is brought into the benefits of the one who does wear the crown. And see, all the authority, the honor, the power, the significance of the one wearing the crown is then shared with the one who's brought into the marriage unity. But without that marriage unity, the person who is married in, when they're outside the family, the crown doesn't benefit them. They don't have that same honor and glory and authority until they're unified by marriage with the one who wears the crown. And that's exactly what Christ does. He's made us a kingdom and priests to God by setting us free from our sins by his blood and bringing us into the unity of an eternal marriage covenant by which we inherit the crown of life and rule with our king forever. This is the eternal weight of glory that stands in contrast to our light momentary affliction. And this is the reward for the one who faithfully endures persecution to death. Jesus rewards that faithfulness. Scripture clearly teaches that Christians will suffer persecution again and again. Scripture says it. Jesus says it. You will suffer persecution on account of his name and his testimony. This isn't a surprise. This is the cost of following Jesus. 
In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. As a Christian, you're called to represent him faithfully through persecution. And our hearts need this encouragement. Whether you're in the middle of persecution, you need the encouragement. Or if you have yet to face it, you still need the encouragement to carry it into persecution. Jesus knows your troubles. He knew what the Smyrnaeans were experiencing. He felt it. He knows what you are experiencing and what you will experience. And he's with you. And Jesus also allows your testing for your good, for his glory, for the church's um, survival and thriving. He allows your testing. But Jesus rewards your faithfulness. We can walk through these trials with faithfulness instead of fear because though there's tribulation in Jesus, remember uh, what John said in chapter 1, verse 9, in Jesus there's tribulation, yet in Jesus there is also a kingdom and a patient endurance. What he calls you to walk through, he supplies the grace necessary to endure. Hmm. He is walking alongside of you every step of the way, present with you, knowing what's happening, strengthening you through it, sustaining you through it, and promising to reward you when you come out the other side. So what do we do with this message in an American church where we don't feel persecution? And this is, by way of closing, just two points. I believe the first thing that we need to do, as I mentioned at the beginning in my prayer, is that we must intercede for our international brothers and sisters who are enduring persecution right now. We have to be honest with the fact that persecution is not left behind in the first century. Persecution is very real, very present, and very intense around the world right now. In fact, Estimates are that up to 80% of people who experience persecution on account of their faith are Christians. And thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Christians, are persecuted and killed every year. This is a harsh reality of the church today. And so as a church in a free nation, where we have the ability to worship together publicly, we have to intercede for our brothers and sisters. We have to feel the unity with them. And we have to strive on their behalf in prayer. There's just a, there's a few tools that we can use. Um, Voice of the Martyrs is one, and there's a website called ICommitToPray.com. And along with that, Operation World. And what they do is they provide resources for us to be aware of what's happening around the world and to be able to pray specifically for those people. We can lift them up and intercede on their behalf. I really feel like that's so important for us to incorporate into our devotional lives that we would be interceding for the church around the world outside of our own context. We've got to be aware of that, and we've got to be unified with them, doing battle for them. I, I, I hope that if I am ever persecuted, imprisoned for my faith, that there are Christians around the world praying for me. What an encouragement that is. So let's not be lazy as our brothers and sisters are going through persecution, but let's do battle for them.
And the second thing, in response to this message, to this letter to the church of Smyrna, this encouragement to endure persecution, is that we would stop minimizing lesser forms of persecution in our own context and then faithfully walk through them with boldness. The reality is that though we can legally worship, the government is not persecuting our church, we're not being imprisoned for our faith, persecution is very real and it does exist in America. If you just scroll through comments on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you see that there are many people in our very context who have such hatred for the church. Yet we don't always experience the persecution because we shy away from it. And I believe that in the, the professional sphere, this is where the biggest temptation lies. I believe that there are so many opportunities to represent Christ faithfully through our day-to-day -day lives, but especially in the corporate world, where we actually probably would experience persecution, but we shy away from it before it even happens because we kind of write it off as saying, well, you know, if I'm ridiculed, if somebody says something bad about me to my coworkers, it's not really persecution. I just, it's uncomfortable, so I don't want it to happen, so I'm just not going to go there. But the reality is, that is a form of persecution on account of the testimony of Jesus. When you declare that you belong to him, when you declare your identity with Christ, when you speak his name and you receive pushback and maltreatment because of it, that's persecution. We've got to call it what it is, and we can't shy away from it. We've got to walk faithfully through it. And I feel those temptations. I feel the the weakness when you're in a situation where you have an opportunity to represent Christ and the threat of discomfort or ridicule or whatever it is, it suppresses our representation of Christ in those moments. But I believe that the letter to the Smyrnaean church, to the persecuted church, should stir up within us such a desire to be faithful to Christ that in those moments we don't shy away from it, but we're bold. And the fact is that left to our own, um, to our own strength, no, we're, we're going to fail. But we have to remember that Jesus is providing the grace. In those moments when you step into what could potentially be a persecution, he's providing the grace and he's actually speaking through you if you let him. So as a church in America, we've got to stop minimizing lesser forms of persecution and then faithfully and boldly walk into them and represent Christ faithfully and clearly. We've got to be loud, bold witnesses, burning with the flame of his presence, making him known in the darkness. And Jesus says, if, if you're ashamed of me, then at my coming, I'm going to be ashamed of you. Don't be ashamed of him, but press into him in those moments. Represent him faithfully. As I close, I just want to read to you guys the words of Peter, one who did faithfully endure persecution to death. I want to read his words in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 down through 19. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you 
as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Lord, I I come before you this morning humbly recognizing that there have been so many times where I have been ashamed to represent you boldly. And I know I'm not alone in that, Lord. I want to, to confess before you that there are so many moments where we have been weak and unfaithful in representing you because we have feared some level of persecution. Lord, would you forgive us for that? And Lord, I do want to pray on behalf of our church that you would strengthen us and encourage us through the words of this letter that we would not fear persecution because we know that it's only temporary. Lord, would you help us to know that this is spiritual warfare. This is normal for those who follow Christ. This is to be expected. And Lord, you reward us for our faithfulness. So help us to be encouraged and inspired to continue to represent you in the darkness of this evil world, this perverse generation. Help us to be lights in the world. Lord, we want to be faithful to you. I pray that you would purify our church, that you would embolden us, that you would strengthen us and sanctify us as we face trials of many kinds. But Lord, especially when it comes to persecution, Lord, would you refine us? We want to be your faithful witnesses even unto death. And for my brothers and sisters around the world, again, Lord, I lift them up before you. Help us as a church in Wissanoming in Philadelphia not to be lazy in our spiritual warfare, but to go to battle in prayer for our church, for your church, our brothers and sisters. We are unified in you, Christ. Lord, we are, we're married into the benefits of your glorious kingdom. And so we lift up our brothers and sisters, and Lord, I ask that we would be faithful to keep in mind this reality, Lord, that around the world, the church is suffering for your name's sake, but you're glorified in that, Lord. Lord, help us to to take part in the global church in intercession and in support. Lord, we, we do love you so much, and we're so thankful, we're so humbled that you would give your very life, that you would be faithful to the Father and to his will and to redeeming your people so that we might be rescued from the second death, so that we might share in the eternal glory of your crown of life, Lord. We long for that day. Lord, please encourage us by these words, by this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.